Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, Edmar Ferreira will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Jamie Gull, a Stanford University aerospace engineer, former SpaceX engineer, and now co-founder of Talon Air. Hey, welcome, Jamie, to the Deep Tech Show. I'm really happy to have you here. I think we have a lot to talk about today, so it's going to be a great conversation. Just to to kick things off, tell us a little bit about Talon and what you guys do. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Talon, we are the world's first staged eVTOL aircraft system. Uh, I'll unpack that a little bit. eVTOL is electric vertical takeoff and landing, so it's taking off and landing like a helicopter straight up and down, not needing a runway. It's electric, so it's electric motors, uh, usually powered by batteries, but some other people use things like hydrogen power or hybrid. Uh, and our system is staged. I mean, it's two aircraft hooked together, kind of like staged rockets. Um, so you take off vertically with the two aircraft hooked together. You get moving forward and then both aircraft are flying on their wings and they'll separate in midair. The vertical takeoff and landing portion uh, returns to the pad that you just took off of and the electric aircraft without all the VTOL uh, parts on it now flies very far and efficiently uh, to where you're, wherever you're going where it will dock with another VTOL vehicle in midair and then transition back to vertical flight and perform a vertical landing. So you get the benefits of long range electric flight, uh, pair with VTOL flight, so you don't have to use an airport. I, I watched a little bit uh, the video on your website. I'm going to put it on the link show so that you guys that are listening can, can look at it too. It looks like a sci-fi thing. It is a sci-fi like, thing. How, how, did it, how did it get started? Like, how, how this idea came to fruition? Like, it looks like a really, really uh, different sci-fi-ish type of thing to do. So my co-founder and I, uh, that's Evan Mukasey, we worked together at SpaceX for a while. We were each there over five years and we actually worked very closely together there for three years. And it comes essentially from applying the thinking behind stage rocketry to aircraft. So in rockets, you've got a first stage and a second stage. And you use the first stage, which is the big heavy part, to get up, get moving. And then as soon as you're done with it, you dump it. You get rid of it. So you don't have to carry that around anymore. You get rid of the mass. You get rid of the air drag. Um, and then you light up your second stage and you keep going uh, without all that extra stuff. Same thinking applies to aircraft here and only in the VTOL realm. So VTOL flight takes a lot of energy uh, and a lot of power. It also adds a lot of weight to your vehicle um, in the form of those VTOL rotors and motors um, and then a lot of air drags you have all this extra stuff hanging off your vehicle so once you're moving forward you want to get rid of all that so the exact same thinking applies here that's how we came up with it uh, we started looking at other people doing urban air mobility and the primary range limiters uh, beyond the battery energy density which is, is often talked about is in VTOL flight requires all this all the extra stuff and so you get rid of the mass get rid of the drag um, you can optimize each vehicle around power which is a very important part uh, it's a little bit more technical to get into that But uh, yeah, you get rid of that and you can, all of a sudden you have the range of an electric aircraft, which is over 300 miles on current batteries. So you get regional flight with VTOL. Uh, so you kind of get the best of both worlds. The hard part's doing the separation and the docking between the two vehicles. Yeah. Like you would be competing like with more with helicopters or more with planes because your range is, is pretty big as, as I was looking at your website. So you could compete with airplanes as well, not only like helicopters. Like you guys think of this like a city to city transport or inside the city transport? More like city to city transport. So our, a great example
example for us, we're based in Los Angeles. Going from LA to San Francisco is, when you, if you fly commercially, uh, three and a half to four hours door to door. So both are big cities with a lot of traffic. It takes anywhere from 30 minutes to 60 minutes to get to the airport. Uh, you got to go through security, wait around for your flight for an hour. Yeah. Your, your actually gate to gate time, I, if I remember correctly, is like an hour and five minutes for that flight. And your in-air time is only about 50 minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you got to do the same thing on the other end. So imagine if you could take that flight, make the flight a little bit longer because we're slower, an hour and a half, yeah. but you cut out either end of the security waiting around in the traffic. Um, so you can do it much faster. You could do it an hour and a half instead of three and a half to four hours. Your other alternative driving, which uh, is about four to five hours, depending on how fast you drive and how much traffic there is. And I actually know friends who have beat their friends who took a commercial flight by driving um, just because of those factors. So yeah, it's kind of a use case where you could skip all that stuff and go so somewhere much quickly. It doesn't have to be a city, but somewhere you want to get to. Yeah, yeah we do spend a lot, a lot of my flights, I end up spending more time in the airport than the actual plane. So it's, it makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah, it's like it's almost like you're doing some kind of ritual to make the airplane fly each time. Like it's like a whole dance to make it to make it fly because you need to do a lot of hoops too. Yeah, we just you our VTOL aircraft is kind of like a tugboat for a ship mm -hmm. in a port. You're just getting it going and it enables you to use essentially a vertiport or a small helipad instead of a whole airport, which uh, a lot of players are working on installing many of those throughout a city. So you'd be close to one wherever you are. So you guys are thinking about selling the vehicle directly or operating a type of, of service? How you guys are thinking about this? Um, it's a good question. We're a ways out from that. Uh, we think for passenger flights, we would sell the vehicles to an operator, a part 135 operator. Um, we're looking at some other things in smaller cargo space where we might actually be the operator. So it's essentially be cargo logistics as a service. Like what, what type of operator would be in this case? Like an airline or someone that operates helicopters? Like uh, Primarily an airline would be the best for the passenger flight. So somebody who can hook that into their network. You can still fly these in and out of airports. We can operate them off of a runway. So you kind of could take United, for example. Uh, you fly into a hub somewhere and then you hop on one of these and then you fly directly to your destination to some small town that doesn't have an airport uh, or another city that's close by and you want to go directly to your destination. So integrating with an airline would be an ideal use case for uh, the passenger version. And how long have you been working on this idea? Uh, we've been at it for two years. And what's your timeline right now? So right now we're flying subscale prototypes to prove out our technology. Uh, we've demonstrated part of our uh, two key flight maneuvers and working on the other part. Um, from there, we will be scaling up to a mid-sized prototype and commercial uh, operation that's unmanned um, and then eventually to passenger flight. So passenger flight, we're looking at about eight years, um, which is pretty normal for the industry for something this new. Uh, yeah. It'll be a little while, but we've got other other ideas and plans in the interim to get into the market and be operating prior to that. So we're not waiting that long and having to raise all that much money to get to get to market. What do you think is the size of this market? Uh, it's big. And looking at logistics market and passenger market, you know, 20% of flights in the US are under 350 miles. Um, that's a 10 plus billion dollar market per year. And, and then with new tech like this, um, other electric aircraft, that market should expand. So we're trying to pull people out of their cars and start flying when you can add new destinations that are affordable um, rather than just doing the primary hub and spoke model, which is what the airlines do today. So that market should 
also grow. In uh, the the vehicle, it's like there's a pilot there, or it's like automatic, like how it works. We intend to put a pilot in our passenger version uh, until automation becomes commonplace. Uh, we don't want to rely on that. Uh, it's definitely there are different approaches within the industry. So some people think go straight to automation. Others say stick with a pilot for a while. Uh, we say we're pilot agnostic in the sense that we'll put a pilot in there until it's normal and commonplace. People accept it to be unpiloted, and then you can replace that pilot with an additional passenger. Yeah. So you have like a, a two stage systems. So system where you have like that first stage with that hover that looks like a drone taking the, the aircraft yes. and, and lifting it, and then taking it back at the end. So that drone it's automatic. The the one that looks like a hover and attaches okay. it by itself. Yeah, it's fully autonomous. Yeah, this is this seems to be a really hard technical challenge to make it like the to hard make it part is getting dock. vehicles to dock. Yeah, um, having it fly autonomously is not that hard. It's commonplace. Um, yeah, there's examples of docking that have been done before. So way back in the 1950s, the Air Force had Project Ficon, and they actually docked fighter jets to bombers by hand. Um, so there's been a lot of years in development of tech on the sensors and compute side that make this a lot easier. They also had a pretty hard problem in the sense that those aircraft were not designed for this docking. They scabbed these parts on for them. So you're taking this small, uh, short, stubby wing fighter jet, flying it up into the wake of this very big bomber with a huge fuselage on it. Um, they just respond to gusts differently. They're not, you know, they've got these large wakes shedding off the fuselage. It's just not designed for it. So we've designed that system from the beginning to be made for this docking. It's two similar size aircraft, uh, no big fuselage on the upper vehicle to shed weight. Um, and so it's an easier problem. And then with autonomy and sensors being where they are today, it's definitely doable. Uh, but our goal right now is to prove that out uh, to people to show that it is doable at a small subscale. And then as you scale up in many ways, it actually gets easier because heavier, larger aircraft, uh, you know, they don't bounce around as much in, in things like wind gusts and things like that. It gets a little bit harder in some other ways, but it's mostly easier as you scale up. Yeah, about like, and it's, it's a electric as well, right? It's not only that it's like a drone that docks in mid-air, but it's electric as well. Everything is electric. Everything's electric. And why do you think that the time now for electrical vehicles like that? Like, why didn't we had it before? Unlike the electric car, which existed a long time ago and was killed and then brought back, um, the tech wasn't there to enable airplanes of any sort to fly electrically. There's two big breakthroughs here. Um, one is battery energy density, primarily driven by Tesla. You know, batteries have gotten much better per unit mass is all that is. So for aircraft that are very weight sensitive, that's the best uh, performance indicator out of a battery is, is energy density. Um, and the other thing is power density in electric motors. So electric motors have gotten smaller and more powerful, uh, and now they can be used for an aircraft. And then when you combine those two things into what's called distributed electric propulsion. So distributed meaning you're going from one large rotor like a helicopter to a bunch of smaller rotors. Uh, that's enabled by electricity because you can distribute the power easily by just putting additional wires in. Whereas if you have a really big turbo shaft engine and you got to run a bunch of shafts out, that's heavy, it's unreliable. Yeah. It just doesn't work. Um, so electric allows you to go there and then you get all these smaller, more powerful motors and you can put a bunch of them out there. Um, so in, in the industry, anywhere from four to 18 motors are what's used. I haven't seen more than 18, although I'm sure somebody's done it. Yeah, so the um, fact that it's electric makes room for a different design because you can have more motors. Oh, this exactly. is interesting. Like it's like... A different design 
so you get uh, it's more reliable because if one of them fails, it's okay. Whereas in a helicopter, if your main rotor fails, you can you're done. <laughs> um, yeah, and you you enable different. It opens up the design space in different ways, uh, in, in many different ways you couldn't before. How many motors do you have on the on the? How do you call the dock? The dock thing. We call it the uh, lift vehicle. The lift vehicle, and how many on the on the actual vehicle? We have eight uh, vertical and two horizontal right now. So eight. And how many can malfunction and it still can be safe? Uh, depending on where they're located, two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, single point of failure is, is not great, so a couple can fail. Um, yeah, this is good. Then for the pushers, really just one. Uh, it's like a twin engine aircraft. Yeah. Hey, do you have like a pretty, pretty impressive experience, let's say, like in SpaceX and other companies doing engine investing, student at Stanford? Why bother to start a new company, man? <laughs> uh, a lot of reasons. One is just really wanting to do my own thing, uh, doing something big. You know, this for passenger flight, there's one use case, there's middleman logistics. There's other iterations here where you can pick up other fixed wing aircraft that already exist in other forms. Uh, for Ed and I, this is kind of a new way to do aviation uh, with a lot of different use cases that probably aren't even fully understood yet. Uh, so yeah, taking a swing on our own to do something big uh, was just something we really wanted to do. And the other big factor here is that we're both believers in electrification. We both want to do aviation again. And so being part of that industry and that push um, and coming up with something that's very different from anything else anybody else is doing, we thought was very valuable. Cool. And there is anything that tends to be misunderstood when you're explaining your company to investors or lay people? And what's the most common thing that gets misunderstood or the common thing that people get wrong? I think, well, the most common response is that mid-air docking looks too hard. Um, mm-hmm. There, you know, Like I said, there's been examples in the past where it's been done and then all the compute architecture and autonomy has come so far. Uh, another example is they used to fly like by hand stunt pilots to biplanes in such close formation flight that people could hop between the wings. And so oh. the aerodynamics are there and taking that, applying the new autonomy systems. Wait, it's wait, 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 yeah. wait a second. They could fly airplanes and so close that people could jump in the wings from one to the other? Yes, yeah, so oh. if you take a biplane, it's, you know, it's two wings on top of each other. Oh, and I see. Yeah. Fly two of them really closely together. And so somebody could go from the top wing of one to the bottom wing of the other. Um, oh. So that just shows you that when you have two similar aircraft, you can fly them in close proximity like that um, long enough to do to do it a maneuver. And I, you know, our other response to that is, you know, like in, from our background coming from SpaceX, nobody thought you could land a rocket on a pad. Um, and Evan and I were heavily involved in that program. Um, so I think there's an unlock here for a lot of different new ideas um, that, that we're going after. That's a common question and that's it's on us to go show technically that it can be done. And, and what's the biggest uh, technical challenge you think you guys are facing? It's that mid-air docking for sure. Um, yeah. So it's, there's a lot of other challenges wrapped up in there. There's the sensors required, the onboard path planning for flight. And how do you do it robustly? How do you build and design that mechanism that hooks the two vehicles together? But that overarching problem is definitely the most challenging. Uh, everything yeah. else is, is small in comparison. And what type of sensors and things that is on the on the on the lift vehicle to like know 
where the the, the other vehicle is and, and locate themselves. Because you need to you be pretty precise to make it work. Yeah, it's got to be precise. So you start with what everybody else is using, which is GPS and inertial sensors. So there are little accelerometers and gyros. Um, and that will get you, depending on the system and depending on who you believe, within a couple of meters usually. Um, the other thing that then we'll have to add on are things that are very accurate for the two vehicles uh, relative to each other. So other systems are computer vision, uh, radio beacons, there's laser options. Um, there's a variety of things and we'll probably end up using a combination of them to, yeah. to do that. And that's basically just like if a pilot was flying one aircraft next to the other, it's replacing your eyes, right? Um, how do you, how do you, you can just watch it uh, come together very accurately. Thinking about the future now, suppose we are the future that you guys want. Like you have a lot of these things flying all over places and city to cities all over the world. What changed? Like how the world would be different? So primarily it enables faster transportation and movement of people and goods while being green, uh, which I think are, is very important. Um, the pandemic has brought up interesting questions of where people want to live uh, and do people want to be more dispersed rather than just jammed in the cities? Uh, this could enable, uh, you know, like part-time commuting through the air over a couple hundred miles uh, very quickly and cheaply um, and without also polluting. So that business meetings, people flying around more rapidly. Batteries will get better too. And so uh, our range will increase more. So that means, you know, we're talking, starting to look at like more regional flights, thousand mile flights uh, over the next 20, 30 years where, you know, flying between multiple states, for example, uh, in this manner, and you can start to eliminate airports. There's a lot of airports in the U.S. that are not super well used, but the ones in popular areas are getting slowly pushed out because people want that land and they don't like the aircraft taking off and landing overhead. Um, so you shrink that footprint down, do a, a VTOL flight that's electric so it's quiet. You get up and away from people. Um, and, and now you can go into places that people don't want airports at anymore. Yeah, I think that besides like the environment would be great for the environment doing that. I think that when I think about myself, sometimes I think that I don't travel just not to go to an airport. <laughs> so this yeah. is probably going to make people travel a little bit more. Sometimes you try to avoid it as much as you weigh the cost, not only of the time, but the whole experience, the awful experience of the airport in this episode. Yeah, walking, parking your car or getting dropped off or even walking into a vertiport from your home and essentially walking on to one of these aircraft because it's only a handful of passengers um, immediately and then taking off and having a quiet electric flight dropping you off right where you're going. That's a pretty different experience than yeah. slogging through to the airport and waiting around for an hour and then getting yeah. uh, packed in this giant tin can with your favorite 150 people. It's a different experience. Yeah. And I think that as well as we're seeing like for remote work that's growing a lot, it's really interesting to have this option to that's more seamless experience when you need to go to, to, to a city. So it would allow yeah. to expand the, where you can live without losing it because yeah. nowadays we, you can remote work. It's great, but you lose some things by not being there physically. Of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if you can do both, like if it's like, okay, I'm here, but if I need to go there, it's like a good experience. I don't need to go to the, all the, the hoops in the airport. Then things start losing 
look brighter, I think, or remove walking. Totally agree. Yeah, if you could fly in once a week to get your FaceTime and have your meetings, that's a good way to do it while you live out in a a more affordable or quieter area, which I think there's a lot of people are after right now. Yeah. What about like the noise? Like what what type of noise or noise pollution we're talking about and things like this? Yeah, I mean, that's the great thing about electric and distributed. So in a helicopter, you've got that one giant rotor. The primary noise drivers from that are the tip speed. So the end of the rotor um, is at or near the speed of sound. And that's one of the primary design drivers of a helicopter. Um, So that's super loud because it's moving very fast because of the large diameter. Um, And the other thing is it's a low frequency sound because it's moving relatively slowly or in a rotational manner. So it's that classic that everybody's familiar with. Um, You get rid of those two things with distributed electric. So you've got rotors that are rotating more quickly. um, So it's a different frequency that doesn't fly as far through the air and your tip speed goes way down because of the smaller diameter. And so you're not going anywhere near the speed of sound. Um, It's kind of like a truck driving by on a street in comparison to a helicopter. Not a truck driving by on the street. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, this is good. And like what you guys are trying to do is pretty hard and like traditional startups are already a whole poster of emotions and things. Plus adding all these technical issues seems to be even harder. Have you ever thought about quitting, Alan? There's just this Sure. I'm done with this. I'm done with this shit. It's too hard. Fuck. (laughs) Yeah, definitely sometimes. It's just, you know, if you're having a bad day or looking out, it's just, I think anybody who does a startup, any startup and never thinks that is probably lying. Uh, And yeah, the deep tech, it makes it a little bit harder, but it also provides a different level of motivation too. I think it gives you that long-term drive because, you know, how epic would it be to see these things flying around and having designed and built them? Uh, What what makes you bounce back like when you are like down and you think that shit sticks so hard a lot of things going wrong and blah 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 like what what do you think like what vision do you have what's that it's it's feeling imagining what it would feel like to see them flying overhead and having been uh the genesis of that is a strong driver that i have to go back to sometimes uh, yeah to to keep going (laughs) yeah you you have a, a a quite interesting experience as an angel investor as well uh like how this experience as an angel investor impacts your work as a CEO? Like, there's any learnings from that that you transfer from your work right now? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it definitely helps with fundraising because you know who you're talking to, uh, especially in the earlier stages. Um, and it you know, just gives you the mindset of angels, investors, what they're thinking. Uh, that definitely helps. As far as the actual business goes, you know, I've looked at a lot of pitch decks and talked to a lot of founders. And so knowing what the pitfalls are um, and in hearing that certainly helped because it lets me it gives me a framework for my own business and what am I missing um, also talking about that with other angels uh, when, when you go through diligence on deals is, is super helpful to help me think about our own our own problems and our own future and how we uh, communicate that and and why did you decide to start doing angel investing uh it's a good question I, I've been in tech for a while um, my a bunch of my Stanford buddies all started companies some very well-known. And I really believe in that ecosystem. I don't always believe in the outcomes and some of the subtleties through it, but I do think it's a big driver of innovation in the world and mostly making a better future and planet, but not like I said, not always. Um, And I just want to be a part of that. And also I do view it as a learning opportunity for myself. Yeah. And you are still still doing it or you're you're stopped now that you are? Uh, I still do it, but very rarely. So only when something very interesting 
thing uh, comes by. And you have like a pretty deep technical background. Like how this experience as an engineer impact you as a CEO? Like what do you think that it's different about have, uh, having a deep tech engineering experience and becoming a CEO and what it, it brings to you? You know, the, as an engineer, you know all the details and what's possible and what's not. And the, I think the primary CEO job is sales. So whether it's investors, customers, uh, new hires, you're pretty much selling. Um, I think having an engineering background gives me a very, very grounded knowledge of exactly what we're building. And, you know, I've designed the system with Evan. Um, so knowing exactly what it can do and how we can change that and how we can work with different customers um, and changing those use cases on the fly in my head because I have a deep understanding of the technology, I think is very helpful. And I definitely think there's no CEOs that don't have that. Um, they might have to like go back to the team and say, can I do this or sell something that's not possible? Well, <laughs> which I know is yeah. a classic joke um, yeah. from uh, made by engineer. Yeah, it's classic, classic. Yeah. And, and what's your routine looks like? Day to day. Day to day, yeah. Uh, I, I do a lot of Zoom calls with potential customers, uh, potential investors. Um, I, you know, check in on the team to see technical progress. Uh, if I'm lucky that week, we're going out test flying our subscale prototypes, in which case I get to get away from, uh, get away from the desk, go out in the desert with the team and fly. Um, I'm not doing very much engineering these days, maybe 5% of, of my time. And that's not usually primary engineering. It's usually more like review and guidance. Um, do you so, miss it? Oh, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do miss it. Um, and I, so I do try and stay at least a little bit involved. Um, but the reality is that the business has other needs. Um, and at this stage, I'm the person doing all of that. So that's where I got to focus. Yeah. And what skills do you have that you find the most valuable as a founder? Do you think that? Uh, that's a good question. I, maybe two things. One is I've been actively building a network and talking to people for probably a decade. Uh, and so getting people's take on things, helping out whenever possible. Um, yeah. A lot of people have done a lot of different things, have a lot of different ideas. And anybody who thinks they can go out there and do it solo without a team or without other help, or, you know, it's just not true. So the more people you know and talk to, I think the better uh, feedback you get, the better you'll be at your job. Uh, I think that's pretty important. And then coming alongside that is trying to get in their mindset, like what benefits them? Um, how can you help people? Uh, I think that is really important. You know, we're not just, we, do, we are doing something cool tech-wise, but the worst outcome would be to build something really cool technically that nobody wants. And so we're, we're working hard on that aspect. And I think that's incredibly important. Looking back a little bit, why did you decide to, to have a career in, in aerospace? Uh, I kind of always wanted that. Um, my my grand grandfather and my uncle were pilots. I got my pilot's license at 18. Uh, and so as soon as I went to college, I mean, I knew I was going to be an engineer. It was a question of what kind of engineer. Uh, I jumped straight into aerospace um, and, and just went from there. And so I was right out of college. I was working at Scale Composites, which is a very famous prototype aircraft shop that designed the uh, Spaceship One, Spaceship Two, that's now Virgin Galactic, um, along with the largest aircraft in the world, Strata Launcher, which I was lucky enough to do early design on. Um, so it just kind of been what I knew I wanted to do since, I guess, late high school. If you had like a, a parallel life where you don't work in aerospace, what would you be doing? Ah, uh, that's 
a good question. Um, it would still be deep tech for sure. I would, that's where all my passions are. Other areas that I think are really interesting right now um, are brain science. I think that's fascinating and potentially on the cusp of some large breakthroughs. Uh, I guess coupled with that would be AI. Um, I know AI is super hyped right now. And my personal take is most of it is not really AI. It's just kind of some basic machine learning with some nice wrappers on it. Yeah. Uh, well, we might be getting to the point where it gets pretty interesting and maybe uh, quantum computing is getting there too. And if you can start combining those together, um, yeah. start using quantum computing for better AI stuff, you can maybe, we might be at a really interesting time in history there. So somewhere in that field, I think, but definitely deep tech. Yeah. And like there is a, this phrase quote actually from Peter Thiel that like we wanted flying cars and we got yeah. another 40 characters instead. It's a really famous one. Uh, like, do you believe that technological progress is slowing down? Do I think it's slowing down? Yeah. No, don't. Uh, I think we're in a post-internet kind of, I don't think slowdown is the word, maybe hangover, <laughs> where the internet changed everything, right? Like, so all these companies were built and then I think things are changing under the surface right now, whereas for a lot of people, it might not look like it's changing that much. But those other fields I was just talking about are building a lot of momentum. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if the mid to late 2020s were starting to hit another large inflection point in the way things work and the way we live. Yeah, there's another phrase that I don't remember who said that, that if you take all, all of our screens, like cell phones, computers, everything, the world is just like the 70s. It's the only difference from the 70s to now, take all the screens. Which I think is the same as saying that if you take out electricity, the world is the same as the 19th century. It's that I don't think that the world is not evolving technologically. It's just that sometimes you don't see where it is being being evolving into. So there's a lot of infrastructure being built that we don't see. A lot of tech that's yeah. being constructed that we don't see on the daily lives. Sometimes there is a hangover of like expecting the, I think the, I talk a lot about like the aesthetics of the future sometimes. I think people miss the aesthetics more than the, the actual tech. <laughs> when it's yeah, I, I think. I mean, I guess if you drop somebody from 1970 into our world right now yeah. and didn't have a cell phone and nobody was pulling their cell phone or computers out, they would probably look pretty similar. Like the cars are a little bit more advanced, mm -hmm. but otherwise pretty, pretty much the same. But I bet you, you hand them a cell phone and mm -hmm. the fact that you can hook into anywhere in the world and look up anything and talk to anybody at any time or buy stuff, I think would be pretty mind blowing. Uh, yeah. So yeah, like, like you said, it might not be as visually obvious, but it's definitely everybody operates completely differently now. Yeah. I mean, we're on a Zoom right now. <laughs> exactly. In two different countries. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like, what other startups do you admire um, in your deep tech right now? I mean, I'm super biased. So I would, I would bring up Boom um, because I'm involved with them and their CEO is one of our advisors. But I think, you know, they're doing a big, hard problem that a lot of people said, you know, shouldn't or can't be done. Can you elaborate a little bit more about what they are doing? Yeah, Boom is, they're bringing back supersonic flight. So it's, they're designing a supersonic airliner. Um, they're getting ready to fly their prototype, which is a two-seat aircraft, and essentially applying modern-day technology to supersonic flight to make it affordable uh, and cleaner so that people can fly fast again. You know, the Concorde stopped operating a while back, yeah. and people use that aircraft as an example of why it can't work. I think that's a bad example because it was primarily driven by uh, regulation and governments is the reason that program didn't last. The two governments you know, getting together and And imposing incorrect design requirements and it was a uh, not a passion project but like an icon project for the countries involved rather than a peer company
company who's just trying to make money. Um, that coupled with regulation, you know, that's what killed that. Uh, that stuff can change. And so, you know, if we can fly intercontinentally again at twice the speed of sound, that's going to be awesome. And what do you think we could be doing to accelerate technological progress? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with a U.S. focused view. Our country does not focus on STEM much anymore. Our education system doesn't focus on it. Uh, it's pretty rare. You get a small subset of people who are inspired by it young. Um, and that's super sad. Uh, I think that's going to really hurt us in the long run. And because we're the largest economy um, and the largest innovator in the world, at least in my opinion, um, I think that hurts the whole world. Uh, so if we can bring that back, I think that would be very beneficial. When you talk about education in STEM, you're talking more about college, graduation, high school, or the overall thing? <laughs> the whole thing. You got to start young. Um, you know, kids aren't pumped on math. They're not pumped on science. Uh, it's all, like I said, only a very small percentage of people. I think it's like 20% of college graduates in the U.S. are STEM. Uh, and it used to be a lot higher. Um, and if you're looking on the global stage, China's over 50%. So there's a country who, you know, has its faults, but at least has done a good job of rallying their kids around wanting to be engineers and build tech um, for maybe not always the right motivations and maybe some, some bad things, but like they've done a good job of that. Uh, I think we could do a much better job of that. You know, I think people like, you know, I'm biased here again, but like Elon has done a good job of inspiring another generation of engineers. Uh, and Why do you more. think there's this drop down in the number of people studying STEM? Like, do you have any pet theory about that? Uh, not not concise. I think it's a variety of factors. Um, there's kind of socially, there's a lot of almost disdain and disbelief in science and engineering now, which is hilarious because everybody who gets up and does anything all day is using technology. Yeah, you know, sure. The truck you drive, the car you drive, the phone you use is all made by engineers. Yet uh, the the vaccine you hopefully just took was designed by a scientist. That's that's their life's work. And then people are turning around saying like this isn't real, or you know, engineering is stupid. And it's like that attitude is more pervasive than it definitely should be. Uh, there's a long term backlash, and people don't value education in this country that much anymore um, for whatever reason. Uh, it's it's gone down a lot. Uh, like it, we don't value our teachers. Um, we don't pay them enough. We don't value or celebrate that. You know, we celebrate sports um, and yeah. fame and short term, short term thinking shit like that. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. In the short term thing makes sense because engineering, like good science and good engineering, tend to be long term projects most of the time. It's yep. hard to think in the long term. Right? You don't have like that immediate gratification uh, most of the time. There's a couple cool things that people have been talking about recently where kind of a cliche saying like you overestimate what you can get done in a year but underestimate what you can get done in a decade and that's yeah. a good good way to look at it and then also yeah the the biggest gains come at the end of that decade when you've built up that massive base and we talked a little bit about the internet revolution i do think that gave us a little bit of this false expectation where someone would spin up a software company and three years later they're ipoing um yeah. because it was so fast in that world and that also sucked in all the energy and money um rather than people it's it's hard not to right like you got to yeah. be attracted to that and then it sucked away a lot of the long-term thinking and long-term projects and from where i am it feels
feels like that's coming back. Like people are looking at that. Okay, we've got the space industry that's building up because of SpaceX, the whole flying car industry or whatever you want to call it that we're in. And that's long-term projects. The quantum computing thing is long-term. AI is somewhere in the middle because you can iterate really quickly. But I think the really big gains are are to come over the next decade. So there is a push there and I I hope it comes back. I have a theory that is a comeback and not only because some somehow you have like some long-hanging fruits on the internet under the web that wasn't the initial spark there but at the same time what the internet revolution ended up providing is I think for the first time maybe in mankind history you have a lot of engineers with a lot of money this is what happened we didn't have this before so and when you have a lot of engineers with a lot of money it's like the type of people who tend to be an engineer is not the guy who's gonna have that money and have a building with his name only or or like a car necessarily or a party or something. He wants to build things. Like he's just going to use the money to build things that he was not allowed or didn't have resources to build before. I think this second order is going to be a fun second order effect of the internet <laughs> that yeah, I, I was not expecting. I mean, I think Elon's the biggest example there. Maybe Jeff Bezos is another one. But yeah, I'm part of uh, a group called My Climate Journey. And a lot of the people are who are joining that are former engineers from startups who made a nice chunk of change and are now looking around thinking, how can I have a more positive impact on the world? Um, I don't have to make an income or maybe I can start a company and spend a few million dollars on getting it started up. And yeah, they can look out 10 or 20 years. They never have to worry about money again. Um, Now they can work on these longer, harder problems. And you're right. They're not out there buying the yacht or a penthouse in New York. They want to build stuff. They don't care that much about uh, image. And so I do think I agree with you that it will have a positive effect. I Sometimes I wish those engineers would get involved in that more early rather yeah. than going that route. But it, it does have a benefit, you know, to start a deep tech with, with money. It's expensive. Yeah. And, and I think there's a thing about like uh, you need a really interesting combination of people with imagination and money to make this yeah. type of thing happen. So we used to have a lot of people with money, but not a lot of imagination. Like beauty, yeah. like buying a second mansion is like to me, it's like lack of imagination. Like we don't know what to do with our money anymore and build like a third, fourth home or whatever exotic thing you want. And engineers have a lot of imagination to go around to build things. This is an interesting okay. development. And talking about books, what are some of your favorite books ever? Ever? Ah, that's tough. I mean, if you're, if you're looking at the startup world and what we're doing, I, I think Peter Thiel's Zero to One is a great example. Uh, what else is good on that end? Uh, books that people maybe never heard of that I think are really interesting are yeah. Peter Zihan's geopolitical books, um, The Accidental Superpower. Oh, it's interesting. Never heard about it. What's the name again? The Accidental Superpower. The author is Peter Zihan, and he's written a couple more. Uh, those are some of the most interesting like worldwide geopolitical books I've ever read that talk a lot about demographics and natural resources and how different countries are positioned within the world in the past, future, uh, and current situation. And not many people I know have ever heard of those, so I like oh, to serve. This is interesting. Yeah. And then if you want to counter that, you can read Ray Dalio's recent series on LinkedIn, which have been, which are very long. It should basically be a book, but it's also geopolitical that kind of takes a different tack. Oh, uh, he talked a lot about the U.S. education system and lack of lack thereof and how we're falling behind the rest of the world um, in that series. So there's a lot more. Ray Dalio, the same guy from Principles? Yep. Yeah, Principles pretty good. I didn't know that he wrote another book. Oh, it's a series of, of articles, right? Series of articles on LinkedIn, but each article is probably 
literally 20 pages long. <laughs> so yeah, it's he's a, really smart, man. I like his writing style as well. He writes really well. Yeah. I liked Prince. I thought Principles was okay. Um, I think this is better from him. Yeah. And what about fiction? Do you have any favorite fiction book? I'm trying to think back. None jumped to mind of, of overall fiction. I, I read a variety of like sci-fi. Um, What's your favorite sci-fi? Maybe Cryptomonicon or Diamond Age by... Uh, Diamond Age, pretty cool. Walt Stevenson. Yeah, and Stevenson is pretty cool. Pretty detailed type of yeah. books. Like, I think I have read almost all of all of his, besides Seven Eves, I think it's the only one that I didn't yet. Everybody say that's great. I read well. Seven Eves when it came out. It was good. <laughs> yeah. 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 As a deep tech founder, you need to be able to learn a lot of stuff, like consume a lot of information. Like, How do you keep yourself up to date? Well, I've been winnowing that down uh, because I was probably doing too much of it. Um, I have a couple newsletters, a couple industry newsletters I uh, subscribe to, a couple investing newsletters, and a couple just like overall, like the morning brew, for example, um, yeah. to try and keep that information flow enough mm. that I know what's going on. But man, you could take your entire day and do that. Like industry in the sense of deep tech or specific for like aviation? and Oh, it's like mostly flying. EV, all aviation, um, some DOD mm. stuff, Department of Defense. Uh, a, a couple of those um, is what I generally for industry. Uh, I also, you know, go on Hacker News once a day and, and pick mm. off the ones that interest me, which are generally the, the full deep tech ones. And what advice would you give for a founder just starting like a deep tech company now? Founder just starting deep tech. Uh, I think that if you're in deep tech, you're likely an engineer and you're likely hyper-focused on the technology. And I would encourage you to hyper-focus on the business customer side, um, especially, uh, hopefully you got a co-founder if you're in deep tech um, because the tech is so hard to develop that if one person is doing that, they won't have time for anything else. Um, but focus on you know who you're going to sell to, how you're going to sell, how you're going to raise money. Um, really give that a deep look. Uh, don't just expect that you've got some cool technology and it will magically uh, get picked up by the right customers and the right investors. Last question for you. If you had the chance to send just one message to every human on earth, what would it be? Things are getting better. I think there's a huge focus in this world on negativity, probably because everybody can get on Twitter or pull up the news at every instant of the day and the news only reports bad shit. And there are some really good books out there that I can't remember the names off the top of my head, but they really focus on facts and things like uh, death rates and longevity uh, and GDP and lack of famine and you know people's day-to-day lives, medicine. And it's just across the board, things are getting better and they will continue to get better. And just because everybody's screaming in your ear every day that things suck and everybody sucks and everybody's being mean to each other, uh, don't buy into it. It's not true. Um, doesn't mean we don't have a lot to work on and there are, there are a lot of problems that we should fix on and humans are really crappy to each other a lot. Uh, so keep working on it, but also just know that things are getting better. Good. Hopeful message. I like it. <laughs> Thank you, man, so much for being on the on the podcast. It was an amazing uh, conversation and probably a couple of, of years down the line, we're going to do, I hope that we're going to do a follow-up about Sounds how good. things are progressing. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next. You've listened to an edition of